Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. At the National American Women's Suffrage Association's conference in 1905, held 100 years after the Lewis and Clark expedition set off from St. Louis, its venerable honorary president stood to give her opening address. Susan B. Anthony was a veteran of the movement, and it was her job to unveil a new statue paid for by the members of the association. She said, quote, This is the first time in history that a statue has been erected in memory of a woman who accomplished patriotic deeds. This recognition of the assistance rendered by a woman in the discovery of this great section of the country is but the beginning of what is due. Standing back, she handed the spotlight to a Native American boy who sang the Star Spangled Banner. As the anthem reached its crescendo, Anthony unveiled the statue. Cast in copper and then clad in bronze, it shows Sacagawea on a rock, baby on her back, pointing west. At the bottom, the inscription was erected by the women of the United States in memory of the only woman in the Lewis and Clark expedition and in honour of the pioneer mother of Oregon. Another speaker at the event was the Oregonian suffragist Abigail Scott Dunaway. In her remarks, she said, quote, It is scarcely probable that the pioneer mother who trudged across the almost untracked continent with her babe in arms, and other little children clinging to her gown, in the days when the 19th century was young, ever gave a passing thought to her own heroism, much less to that of the Indian woman of past years of the same century, who, like herself, was building better than she knew. This woman was an Indian, a mother and a slave. And, as she pointed out the devious way in the wilderness that led at last to the home of her people, from which she had been stolen, a man-child on her back, and in her heart the protective mother instinct that was, of itself, sufficient to nerve her to deeds of daring in emergencies before which strong men quailed, and her own husband cried like a baby. Little did she know or realise that she was helping to upbuild a Pacific empire, upon whose borders the white man and the white woman would unite to perpetuate a nation not yet born, where a government of the people and by the people is destined to supersede an aristocracy of sex. Other evidence of human handiwork in these enchanted grounds will pass away. They are not meant to be enduring. But this statue of Sacagawea, representing the past subjugation of women, 
is destined to remain as a historic reminder of a vanished era, when woman carried man on her shoulders, a feminine atlas upholding a world whose full significance was yet to be realised. In carrying this child, herself symbolic of liberty and bondage, Sacagawea is keeping watch and ward over the outer gates, pointing to the Orient, where countless hordes of women still exist in slavery, who shall ultimately look to our enlightened men and women of this Pacific coast for the full fruition of a freedom that has dawned on us already. Today we honour a new type of heroine, not a seer of visions, hearer of strange voices, not even a philanthropist sustained in her labours by the knowledge of her lofty mission. But she whom we now enthrone was a simple child of the unbroken forest, who, with a pure heart and mind tutored by danger and nature's law, endured the calamities and embraced the opportunities of her life with a calm philosophy which we all may profitably acquire. As a child, she met disaster with courage and hope. As a wife, she was faithful. As a mother, she threw the protecting armour of love around her child and worked with hand and brain for humanity. She met every demand. She did what she could, cheerfully and cleverly, without hope of reward and without foreseeing results. In honouring her, we pay homage to thousands of uncrowned heroines, whose quiet endurance and patient effort have made possible the achievements of the world's great men whom they loved and served. Welcome to the other half. Episode 3.17, Sacagawea, a tool of divine direction. Last time, we saw Sacagawea's journey up the Missouri with the Corps of Discovery, and her turn as, essentially, superwoman, managing to keep her baby safe and calm, find food for a big bunch of men, while finding time to point out sites of interest, and saving their butts on at least two occasions. Where we left off, she had just been reunited with her brother and was helping Lewis and Clark with a negotiation for some horses that they needed for the next part of their journey. Today we will complete their journey to the Pacific and back again, as well as looking at how she has been remembered by generations of Americans. But before we get going, I have a couple of notices. The first is that the next episode of this podcast will in fact be an interview with an author who has just written a fascinating book about the women of Pompeii. So keep your eyes out for that in your podcast feed. And second, your usual notice about signing up to the show's Patreon feed. Remember, this is the best way you have to support the show financially. So if you want to do so, head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. And now let's get going. To all my new listeners, welcome. The rest of you, Welcome back. 
late summer 1805, furnished with 29 horses and a mule, the Corps of Discovery said goodbye to the Shoshone and set off north towards the Columbia River. This must have been a bitter goodbye for Sacagawea, as, once again, she was taken away by a group of relative strangers away from her own people. Of course, this time she was leaving more voluntarily than she had when she had been captured as a child, but it still must have stung. Perhaps the sadness would have been assuaged by the possibility that she might see them again and be reunited with her family. If that had given her comfort, then it would turn out to be cold. She never would see her brother again. But this was no time to dwell on her parting because coming up would be the most challenging stage of the expedition. The Corps had survived disease, waterfalls, mosquitoes and spoiled food, but the harshness of the mountains would top them all. There is almost no mention of Sacagawea over the next few weeks, so we don't know how she dealt with the situation. But the journals are full of struggle. It was the beginning of autumn, and while the snow had not yet begun to fall, there was plenty of freezing cold rain to contend with as they negotiated steep, narrow paths over the Bitterroot mountain range. Their horses quickly began to get worn out, and they had to buy more from local Indian tribes to keep going. The weather was cold, and by the time they reached the top of the range, the snow added extra challenges. Food was scarce, and everyone was hungry. This was no environment for a child less than a year old, but that was Sacagawea's responsibility. She must have spent every waking moment worrying about whether her son was warm and dry enough, not to mention worrying that every loose stone, every slippery rock, could send them both tumbling to the bottom of a ravine. Jean-Baptiste's cradleboard on his mother's back was the only real home he had ever known, so maybe he would have been contentedly gurgling all this time. However, in my experience, babies are narcissistic poo factories with short attention spans and even shorter tempers, so it can't have been fun. I said earlier that there was little mention of Sacagawea in this period. Primarily, though, this was because she had already served her purpose. She had been there to facilitate the negotiations between the Corps and the Shoshone. Now, she had already proven herself more than useful over and above that. But still, as the wind chilled her to the bone and her son wailed, she must have wondered why she had bothered to come along. Finally, after spending well over a month in the mountains, they reached the Clearwater River in modern central Idaho, a tributary of the Columbia. A local tribe, the Nez Perce, promised to look after their horses, and... After a few days of rest and recovery, they set off on the final stage of their journey west. They were once again in dugout canoes, but this time they were paddling downstream, not up, which would have made the going a little easier. Along the way, they encountered many more tribes, including the Cayuse and the Sokolks. Most of these encounters were friendly, but on one occasion, Clark inadvertently set them on edge when... Not knowing there was anyone nearby, he shot at a bird. He wrote in his journal, I observed a great number of lodges on the opposite side at some distance below, and several Indians on the opposite bank, passing up to where Captain Lewis was with the canoes. Others I saw on a knob nearby opposite to me, at which place they delayed, 
but a short time before they returned to their lodges as fast as they could run. I was fearful that those people might not be informed of us. Clark then took up some men and distributed gifts to the tribe to try and make up for this bad first impression. But still, they were wary, and things might have turned nasty. However, things changed when Sacagawea approached. Quote, As soon as they saw the squaw wife of the interpreter, they pointed to her and informed those who continued yet in the same position I first found them. They immediately all came out and appeared to assume new life. The sight of this Indian woman confirmed those people of our friendly intentions, as no woman ever accompanies a war party of Indians in this quarter. Captain Lewis joined us, and we smoked with those people in the greatest friendship. So, once again, second discovery out of a tight spot. This time, though, it wasn't so much because of her actions, but because of who she was. She lent the group of Americans a sense of legitimacy, that their intentions were peaceful and that they meant no harm. She may have accomplished the task for which she had been appointed, but she was still paying out dividends much long after. On the 7th of November, 1805, after they had been travelling down the Columbia for a few weeks, they sighted their goal, the Pacific Ocean. And it was not a moment too soon. Winter was fast approaching, and they needed to make camp before the weather turned nasty. Unsurprisingly for the Pacific Northwest, it was cold, grey, and wet, which made progress difficult. They had not been able to identify in advance a good spot to make camp, and so they wandered around in thick fog looking for somewhere suitable. Their major problem at this time was water as nearly all the river water this close to the ocean was too salty. They tried a few locations, but they always found their bedding supping wet and their canoes in danger of being swept away. This was a trying time for everyone. And for the first time, Sacagawea appears to have lost her patience. On the 13th of November, Lewis mentioned cryptically that, quote, Squaw displeased at me for not... Dot, 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 and then doesn't say what for, which is, you know, helpful. It really could have been anything, but to my mind, it was probably just frustration. Throughout all this journey, Sekichibuya would have been looking forward to seeing the Pacific. She had likely never seen the sea before, but now she had reached it, she found it rather disagreeable. Terrible weather would have upset her baby, and she must have been exhausted from seven months of travelling. Now, one can make too much of this incident. We don't know if this was just a short word or a blazing row that lasted for days, but the fact that he chooses to make note of this till now unique occurrence of displeasure does suggest to me that she was pretty cross. While they searched for the right place to camp, they traded with the local Chinooks, but they were far shrewder negotiators than any of the other tribes they had hereto encountered. Lewis and Clark's journals are full of frustration at the hard bargains they were forced to make in exchange for their supplies. But their toughest negotiation was not for food, but a fur coat. Clark wrote about it in his journal. Quote, One of the Indians had on a robe made of two sea otter skins. The fur of them were more beautiful than any fur I'd ever seen. Both Captain Lewis and myself endeavoured to purchase the robe with different articles. 
At length, we procured it for a belt of blue beads, which the squaw wife of our interpreter Charbonneau wore around her waist. The next day, as a gesture of thanks, Lewis gave her a blue coat, possibly his army jacket. Now, again, it's hard to know just what a wrench this might have been for Sacagawea. She had worn this belt all the way from her home amongst Hidatsa, and had never offered the trade at any time before. Blue beads were much in demand by the Chinooks, which is likely why they had been so keen to trade for them. Was this a cherished heirloom? A valuable and prized accessory? Or was it just a belt? Was she forced to give it? Pressured into it? Or gave it willingly, seeing how much her friends wanted the otter fur coat? Sadly, we'll never know. We certainly do know that she was close to Clark at this time, though not as close as Hollywood would have you believe. And so it is perfectly plausible that she did this willingly. I like to think that this was an act of kindness, but this is pure speculation on my part. She certainly would not be the first, nor the last, Native American to be pressured into giving up something valuable so that an American could get something he wanted. After a couple more weeks of fruitless searching for a camping ground, Lewis and Clark did something rather unusual. Up until now, they had run the expedition as a military operation, with them giving the orders and everyone else obeying. But on the subject of where they should camp, they made an exception. Perhaps due to indecision on their part or grumbling in the ranks, they gave everyone a vote to go north or south. And when I say everyone, I mean everyone. Both Sacagawea and the slave York have their say, making this the first time in recorded American history that a woman and an African-American cast a vote. I don't want to make too much of a deal of this. It would be decades before either women or African-Americans would get meaningful votes in national politics. This was just a decision about where to pitch some tents after all. But it is a notable first, if nothing else. Sacagawea apparently said that she didn't care where she went, so long as it had plenty of potatoes, proving that she is a woman after my own heart. Interestingly too, she was referred to as Janie, which it seemed to become her nickname. Why? Who knows? It was certainly easier for them to pronounce and spell than Sacagawea, and perhaps again demonstrates how friendly their relationship had become. Eventually, Lewis found a suitable inlet for them to overwinter. They called it Fort Clatsop, which today is just southwest of the city of Astoria in Oregon. The Corps spent the rest of December building cabins, finally finishing on Christmas Day. The real gift for them was clean and dry bunks to sleep in, but they did also exchange presents. It isn't recorded what Sacagawea got, but Lewis wrote that she gave him two dozen white weasel tails, perhaps to make a scarf to go with his fancy new coat. The next few months were a somewhat dull routine of hunting, trading and sitting about, with Sacagawea rarely mentioned. Keeping her baby warm would have been a constant concern, but we also get a sense here of her curious side. On the 6th of January, some native traders told the Corps of a beached whale further up the coast. Sacagawea, who had never seen the sea, and was stewing at being forced to stay at camp, likely for her own safety, overheard this news and asked to be allowed to tag along. 
This would be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to see an animal like a whale. A colossal beast, the likes of which she would only have heard before in campfire songs and stories. Lewis said no, prompting a furious reaction. Quote, The Indian woman was very importunate to be permitted to go, and she was therefore indulged. She observed that she had travelled a long way with us to see the great waters, and that now that monstrous fish was also to be seen, she thought it very hard she could not be permitted to see either. The use of the word indulged here is very telling, as it speaks to the paternalistic and often condescending way Lewis considered the Indians in general, and Sacagawea in particular. It was a fairly miserable four months at Fort Clatsop. The men only recorded 15 days of sunshine in that time, with the weather otherwise being grey, wet and cold. Finally, though, the weather began to brighten, the days grew longer, and everyone was itching to be home. Sacagawea's child, Jean-Baptiste, was now a year old, and would be far bulkier and more curious, likely making him more of a handful. The prospect of the return journey would likely have filled her with worry, but there was nothing to be done. It was time to go. They left on the 23rd of March, 1806, on what would be the most physically challenging leg of the journey. They were travelling up the Columbia, fighting against the swift currents and high water levels caused by the winter thaw, not to mention the incessant rain which fell nearly every day through April. Imagine trying to keep a toddler dry, calm and happy through all of this, not to mention out of the water. When they finally reached the river's upper reaches, it was time to transfer back to horses for the overland trek back to the Missouri. They could not yet find the tribe to whom they had entrusted their old ones, so they were forced to seek out new horses. Sacagawea would have helped with the translating, but unfortunately she didn't speak the local language, making things very difficult. Through a combination of shared words, sign language, and probably an awful lot of speaking very slowly and very loudly, they procured some horses. Once they had done so, they made the arduous journey back over the mountains. Mentions of Sacagawea are relatively scarce again at this point, with most references being to her collecting vegetables. As a quick sidebar, the weird diet of the Americans must have been a constant sort of concern and amusement to Sacagawea. All they ever wanted to do was eat red meat, with fruit and veg being seen with a child's suspicion of all things green and healthy. Her skills in identifying vegetables, though, led her to discover some previous unknown to Americans, adding botanist to the list of jobs she performed for the Corps. Clark fancied himself as a bit of a doctor and treated many Indians along the way and attributed some of their health problems to them eating too many vegetables. Not sure you'd find many physicians making that diagnosis now. On the 18th of May, Clark mentions her collecting wild root vegetables and then drying them to preserve them for the long journey ahead something that would be very necessary if they were to avoid the hunger that had plagued their journey out west. Before, though, they set off on a particularly dangerous part of the journey, Jean-Baptiste came down with illness. Now, frankly, it's a miracle he lasted this long without becoming sick. But now his little jaw and throat were swollen, and he had a high fever. No one knew what he had contracted. It was likely a simple childhood illness, 
But in the 19th century, and while out in the wilderness, even the most basic fever could be fatal. Clark prescribed a, quote, poultice of onions to settle his chest, and then cream of tartar as a laxative, which, shockingly, wasn't all that effective. He remained sick for around a week, until his symptoms finally began to abate. Clark patted himself on the back for a job well done, but more likely, nature had simply taken its course. Once they had made it over the mountains, they decided to split into two parties. Clark took most of the men, and Sacagawea, on the direct route home, while Lewis took six on a journey to explore the Marias River. Sacagawea was now back in land she knew, and advised Clark on the best routes to take back to their canoes. Once more, Clark's journal is full of little anecdotes from Sacagawea's childhood, including a buffalo track that she pointed out, which considerably cut their journey time. The Corps reunited a month later on the Missouri, and five days later, they were back at the Hidatsa village where they had first met Sacagawea. It must have been an emotional parting for comrades who had shared so much hardship over the 16 months. Typically, the rather taciturn journal entries aren't all that insightful, but Clark did record an extraordinary offer that he made to Charbonneau. Quote, I offered to take his little son, a beautiful, promising child who is 19 months old, to which they, both himself and wife, were willing, provided the child had been weaned. They observed that in one year the boy would be sufficiently old to leave his mother, and he would then take him to me if I would be so friendly as to raise the child for him in such a manner as I thought proper, to which I agreed. This says a lot, both about Clark's affection for Jean-Baptiste and his opinion of the Indians more generally. The two appeared to have bonded throughout the trip, and during his period of illness in particular. He even had a nickname for him, Little Pomp. Indeed, a few weeks before, Clark had actually named a large rock in his honour, Pompey's Tower. As an important figure in St. Louis society, Clark would be able to give Jean-Baptiste a comfortable position and a Western education. And there is no doubt that he saw this as a generous offer his parents could not refuse. Which is really my point. This rather condescending attitude towards the Indians permeates through all these journals and makes the assumption that Jean-Baptiste would be significantly better off in American society rather than Indian. Whether or not he would be is a matter of conjecture. Certainly his life expectancy would be higher in St. Louis than in an Indian village, but it's impossible to know what his life may have been like if he stayed out west. What does Sacagawea think of all this? Well, history doesn't say, but it's not likely she had much of a choice. In both Indian and American society, the father had complete say over their child's destiny. This was a deal broker between Clark and Charbonneau. The concerns of the mother were immaterial. That is not to say that they did not hold a great deal of affection towards her. They did, but her race and her gender once again precluded her from a seat at the decision-making table, even when it concerned her son's future. With that decided, the corps set off into the sunset, leaving Sacagawea and her family with the Hidatsa. It was the end of a long and challenging journey, one of hardship, 
but also great happiness. She had seen her brother again, trod on ground she had not felt since she was a little girl. She had experienced adventure and travelled further than anyone else in the village. But now it was all over. A few days after their parting, Clark wrote a letter to Charbonneau, reiterating his offer. Quote, You have been a long time with me, and conducted yourself in such a manner as to gain my friendship. Your woman, who accompanied you that long, dangerous and fatiguing journey route the Pacific Ocean and back, deserved a greater reward for her attention and services on that route than we had in our power to give her at the Mandans. As to your son, my boy Pomp, you well know my fondness of him, and my anxiety to take him and raise him as my own child. If you aren't disposed to accept either of my offers to you, and will bring down your son, your wife Jenny had best come along with you to take care of the boy until I get him. With the departure of the Corps of Discovery and its journal writers, Sacagawea's life once again enters obscurity, and we don't hear about her again for another three years when they finally decided to take Clark up on his offer. They travelled downriver to St. Louis and handed over Jean-Baptiste, settling on some farmland nearby. I like to think that this was part of a compromise insisted upon by Sacagawea. Charbonneau had never been one to linger. He had always been a man on the move. And so his decision to try his hand out as a farmer seems rather out of character. By staying close to her son, Sacagawea could try to have the best of both worlds. A better life for her child, with her nearby to see him grow. Unfortunately, this didn't last long. And only two years later, in 1811, he was making plans to go back on the trail once more. While it's easy to blame her husband for this, it seems clear that Sacagawea ached for her homeland and wanted to see it again. We know this as a trader that met them at Fort Lisa recorded that she, quote, longed to revisit her native country. She must have trusted that her son was in good hands, but that now it was time for her to go back to where she belonged as well. In this time, she gave birth to her second child, a daughter called Lisette. Sadly, history doesn't record her fate. Around this time, Sacagawea fell ill. We're not sure with what, but it seems to have been some sort of fever. Not one to let a pesky illness slow her down. She travelled on with her husband up to Fort Manuel, near modern Omaha. But that would be her last journey. On the 20th of December 1812, the fort's clerk made this entry. Quote, The wife of Charbonneau, a snake squaw, died of putrid fever. She was good, the best woman in the fort, aged about 25 years. She left a fine infant girl. It was a sad and premature end to the life of a woman who would become a national heroine. And after the break, we'll see how that happened. For the next few years after her death, Sacagawea's greatest legacy was her son. While he had been far too young to remember his adventures with the Corps of Discovery firsthand, his mum and dad likely had regaled him with tales in his childhood. He had been adopted by William Clark at the age of six, 
and had a full and expensive education. He was converted to Christianity and was taught the roles and rituals expected of him in polite American society. At the age of 18, he followed in his birth family's footsteps and became a trader for the Missouri Fur Company. While out there, he met a German nobleman called Paul Wilhelm of Württemberg, who too was exploring the American West. They immediately struck up a friendship and got on so well that the German invited him back to Europe to further his education. He spent the next few years bouncing between Germany and the American West, before settling more permanently in his homeland in the 1830s, working as both a trader and a hunter. When asked, he generally identified himself as William Clark's son, likely because his was the more influential relationship in his life. His father had had no contact with him after his adoption, and he had not long known his mother. In his later life, he moved to Texas, serving as a scout during the Mexican-American War, before serving as a regional magistrate of around 200 square miles in Southern California. He later got caught up in the Californian gold rush, but never struck much of the yellow stuff, before finally settling down as a hotelier for around 18 years. However, at the age of 61, he had a bit of a mid-to-late-life crisis, and decided to set off on one last grand adventure. Gold had been found in his mother's homeland in Montana, and he felt the hand of destiny on his shoulder. Sadly, though, the hand actually belonged to the Reaper. While on the road north, he fell ill with pneumonia and died in present-day Dana, Oregon. In his local paper in California, his obituary hailed him as a pioneer and an adventurer, though he seems to have been damned with faint praise as a, quote, good-meaning and inoffensive man. What is offensive is the description of his mother, Sacagawea, who was called a, quote, half-breed of the Crow tribe. Other than through her son's memory, Sacagawea was more or less forgotten by the United States for the next hundred years. While Lewis and Clark entered American folklore as the first great quote-unquote tamers of the uncivilised West, Sacagawea's involvement was barely mentioned. The 19th century had other heroes, those of the American Civil War and the wars on the frontiers. It was not until 1890 and the end of the Indian Wars with the massacre at Wounded Knee that the region became thoroughly romanticised and sanitised for Americans to enjoy rather than to fear. One exception to this forgetfulness was thanks to a Welsh clergyman called John Roberts, who travelled to Wyoming to convert the local Indians to Christianity in the 1870s. While there, he encountered a Shoshone man called Basil, who told him that his mother, an old woman in her 80s called Porivo, had accompanied Lewis and Clark on their expedition. She had another son who was called Baptiste, and so Roberts came to believe that this woman was Sacagawea. Unsurprisingly, his claim was rather disputed, not least because the timelines don't quite fit, not to mention the evidence of Sacagawea's death decades before, but the truth rarely gets in the way of a good romantic story. The most famous believer of this version of events was the historian Grace Raymond Hebbard, who wrote the definitive scholarly book on Sacagawea in 1933, called Sacagawea Guide of the Lewis and Clark Expedition. 
Her methods were methodical, but she firmly believed in the Parivo-Sacagawea myth, leading to its infiltration into popular consciousness. However, she was not actually responsible for the Sacagawea Renaissance. That was novelist Ava Emery Dye. Her book, The Conquest, The True Story of Lewis and Clark, published in 1902, was arguably more historically accurate than Hebbard's non-fiction book, and was meticulously researched. This was the first bit of popular writing about Lewis and Clark, and it put Sacagawea back in her rightful place in the centre of the story. Finally, almost a century after her death, Sacagawea was being introduced to the American public, and her reputation exploded almost overnight. Dye's Sacagawea was a kind and generous wife and mother, who acted as a civilising influence on the rough-and-tumble men of the expedition. She was a guide, not just an interpreter, and therefore gained a level of importance arguably greater than the one she actually performed. She was seen as the reason why the expedition succeeded. Without her, they would have died en route. This is, at best, a bit of a stretch. But it was a romantic tale that people like Hebbard and her followers lapped up. In Dai's own words, quote, The world snatched at my heroine, Sacagawea. The beauty of that faithful Indian woman with her baby on her back, leading those stalwart mountaineers and explorers through the strange land, appealed to the world. The state of Wyoming, in particular, was rather keen on this theory, as it posited that this new American heroine had died on its territory on the Wind River Reservation. Hoping for some of those sweet, sweet tourism dollars, they made hay with this theory. They were opposed by South Dakota, who correctly claimed that Sacagawea had died on their land, which led to their congressional representatives fighting so acrimoniously that the Commissioner of Indian Affairs, a Dr. Charles Eastman, intervened to settle the matter in 1924. He travelled widely, interviewing as many people as he could, but the evidence was conflicting. Hebbard and her followers self-selected the testimonies that supported their theories and ignored those that didn't fit, which is sketchy historianing to say the least. Indeed, one of the most convincing reasons that Pariva was not an elderly Sacagawea was that the woman herself never claimed to be, while her son, Baptiste, was illiterate. Remember, the real Jean-Baptiste had been expensively educated and travelled across Europe. To explain this away, Hebbard claimed that living amongst the Indians again had uncivilised him somehow, regressing him to the extent that he had forgotten how to read. Which is, yeah, hella racist. But the myth persisted for over half a century, until an amateur historian named Blanche Schroer began to question it in the 1970s. Through her own research, she became convinced Hebbard's theory was a load of old nonsense, and went on a one-woman crusade to prove her case. She interviewed people who had known Perivo, and spent 40 years proving it. She was supported by South Dakota, and tried to persuade Wyoming to take down their inaccurate memorials and grave markers. Her most convincing argument was from William Clark's own records, as he himself had recorded Sacagawea as having died in his account books. 
My favourite slam of Hebbard, though, comes from the modern historian Virginia Schraff, who described it as, quote, undeniably long on romance and short on hard evidence, suffering from sentimentalization of Indian culture. But the Parivo theory was not the only myth that became attached to Sacagawea. Like Pocahontas, she became whitewashed and presented as a success story of Western civilization over the savagery of the Indians and greed of unscrupulous pioneers, and this vision influenced generations of Americans. In the mid-19th century, the idea of manifest destiny began to grow in popularity. This was the idea that America had the God-given right and mission to grow westwards, become prosperous, and civilise the continent. Manifest destiny was used to justify the annexation of Texas, the breaking of various treaties with Indian tribes, and the creation of an imperial nation that would eventually stretch to the colonisation of all the 48 contiguous United States that we know and love today. Sacagawea was painted as a legitimizer of this process, and a success story. Here was an Indian woman helping these great pioneers of Manifest Destiny. By her presence and assistance, she was endorsing the claiming of all the lands they were, quote-unquote, discovering as American land. Never mind that these lands were not unoccupied or unclaimed by the people already living there. This was why Diane Hebbard's framing of Sacagawea as a vital part of the expedition was such an essential strand of the myth. If she were a bit part player, a mere translator, then her legitimising influence would be diminished. She therefore became elevated as the great example of the ideal Indian and the symbol of American promise. Or, in the words of April Summit, a, quote, tool of divine direction for the United States. But this was not the only legacy of Sacagawea. In the early 20th century, she was appropriated by the National American Women's Suffrage Association as a symbol of female empowerment and independence. That vote that she had cast on where they should camp for the winter was promoted as the first vote for women, and their influence led to a further proliferations of statues and memorials as well as memorabilia. Laudable though their cause was, these campaigners were at pains to tell their audiences that Sacagawea wasn't one of those savage, wild Indians. She was one of the good ones, the right sort. They went to great lengths to not only emphasise her warm personality, but also her beauty. Good looks, remember, have always been associated with virtue and her good grace was shown as an example of what a civilised woman could do if given the chance. Probably the most famous output of this propaganda was a statue of Sacagawea erected outside the North Dakota State House in Bismarck. Created by Leonard Crunel in bronze, this 12-foot statue depicts her in travelling clothes, carrying Jean-Baptiste on her back, and has the inscription Sacagawea, the Shoshone Indian bird woman, who in 1805 guided the Lewis and Clark expedition from the Missouri River to the Yellowstone. Now, we know, of course, that she wasn't a guide, she was an interpreter, but her elevation importance had allowed her to become both an American nationalist and now feminist icon. Another famous statue was created by the female artist Alice Cooper, whose work, which sits in the city park in Portland, Oregon, was sponsored by the America's Federated Women's Clubs. 
That statue and the speeches that accompanied its unveiling were the subject of the introduction to this episode. The speech I quoted from Abigail Dunaway is particularly instructive in how these first-wave feminists viewed Sacagawea. Dunaway praises her, quote, quiet endurance and patient effort that made possible the achievements of the world's great men whom they loved and served. Which is somewhat downplaying her own agency, I'm sure you'll agree. It also has some rather troubling undertones of white supremacy, praising Sacagawea for helping to build a, quote, Pacific Empire upon whose borders the white man and white woman would unite to perpetuate a nation not yet born where a government of the people and by the people is destined to supersede an aristocracy of sex. So, once again, Sacagawea's true story is being appropriated by campaigners with a very set worldview, looking to promote their own causes while ignoring the woman behind it. I won't go through every statue of Sacagawea as we'd be here all week, but suffice it to say that there are scores of them all over America. Make sure you follow the show's Twitter account, as we're posting many of them over the next two weeks. Later, second-wave feminist artists kept Sacagawea as a heroine, most notably Judy Chicago, who put Sacagawea around her famous dinner table of heroines alongside other women in the series, like Bodicea and Joan of Arc. Elsewhere in art, there is Charles M. Russell's painting, Lewis and Clark on the Lower Columbia, which depicts Sacagawea as a peacemaker, acting as a conduit between the Americans and the Indians, once again building on that Pocahontas image. In 1993, the US Postal Service issued a Sacagawea stamp, and of course in the year 2000, she became the face of the $1 coin. There have been surprisingly few representations of her on screen, the most famous of which is the 1955 film Far Horizons, which bigged up Charbonneau as a villain, and the kind-hearted Clark, played by Charlton Heston, as being irresistible to Sacagawea. This film totally omits Jean-Baptiste, and shows her as a traditional heroine, filled with devotion, love and sacrifice for her man. So the people of the United States appropriated Sacagawea's story to suit their own purposes, But what of her own people and other Native Americans? Well, they too were subjected to the white view of Sacagawea. After the passage of the Dawes Act in 1887, which sought to deal with the quote-unquote Indian problem, the United States began a process of indoctrination of young Native Americans, cajoling and sometimes forcing children to attend Indian schools, where they would be stripped of their language and culture and taught new heroes read White Heroes. The story of Sacagawea was taught there, but, in the words of April Summit, quote, as an exception to the rule, an unusual and heroic character who rose above the backwardness of her people and represented what American Indians could become. In other words, she became the justification for the mistreatment of her own people, which is extremely gross. These images persisted right up to the 1970s, where these orthodox views of Sacagawea as a heroine of the expedition who guided Lewis and Clark West, helping to create modern America and justifying Manifest Destiny, was finally challenged. Historians re-evaluated her, showing her as an important member, if not the saviour of the expedition. As a translator, not a full guide, 
as Clark's friend, not his lover. But, since there is so little that survives of her, it is hard to disprove the myths totally. As one great writer of the Old West may have once said, a lie can travel around the world and back again, while the truth is lacing up its boots. So what do Native American communities think of Sacagawea today? Well, of course, they are not of one mind. No group is. There is little doubt that the Lewis and Clark expedition was a disaster for her own people, and so Sacagawea's involvement in it has led some people to slam her as an enabler of white oppression. But the more mainstream view is more generous. Some see her as an unwitting accomplice, a kind heroine whose adventures inadvertently led to their suffering. Her own people, the Shoshone, go further, seeing her as a true American heroine, a symbol of survival and ingenuity. Interestingly, the Hidatsa, the tribe that had captured her as a child, has an oral tradition that she had always been of their tribe, and that Lewis and Clark had been mistaken. This, though, rather screams to me as embarrassment as being cast as the villains of the piece. So, how to sum up Sacagawea? Her story has been told, adapted, stolen and twisted over the centuries to mean different things to different people. Doting mother, dutiful wife, knowledgeable foodie, clever communicator, comforting presence. She's shrouded in myth and legend. And in this way, she perfectly represents America in all its forms. It is a nation obsessed with its own mythology and with a problematic relationship with its past. A beacon of freedom whose story is tainted by conquest, slavery and subjugation. A land where all were created free and equal, except for most of the people in its lands. Her legacy far outstrips the impact of her physical existence. But that doesn't mean she shouldn't be celebrated. To mainstream America, she is an important figure in its history. To women, she is a pillar of strength and fortitude. And to Native Americans, she is one of them. A potent symbol of survival against the odds. Not bad for a woman who died at the age of 25 in the middle of nowhere. salon and the grocery store i'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store groceries through instacart delivered to my door i don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store 